Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Back Room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Today's guest, Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett. We'll get to that in one second. But first, I just want to thank you for tuning in today. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. And maybe we'll read a few next time. So Representative Jasmine Crockett, she is an attorney, former member of the House, Texas House of Representatives, and currently serving as the U.S. Representative for Texas's 30th Congressional District. Elected as a freshman last fall, her district covers much of the city of Dallas and parts of Dallas and Tarrant counties. She's a member of the House Oversight and Agriculture Committees. Congresswoman, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much for having me. How are you? Great. It's uh, awesome to have you here. I know you just passed a big fundraising quarter, so hopefully you raised a lot of dough. Uh, hopefully I raised enough. <laughs> I don't know if it was a lot, but hopefully it was enough. Before we get started, I just want to say you have a great name. I've always had a problem with my name. My <laughs> last name is Ostroy, but you have a Jasmine Crockett. You could do so much with that name. Listen, it's a very Texas name for a girl that was not born and raised in Texas, but my name works for for the area that I represent for sure. And and I got to I got to ask this ridiculously dumb question which you've probably been asked a million times, but uh any 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 relation to Davy? We have no idea. Uh there is a theory that there's a possibility, but we we don't know. That would be very cool. <laughs> it would be. So thanks for coming on. I want to ask you a few questions about your life and obviously your your new career. But uh, I'd be remiss if we didn't address the 800-pound gorilla in the room, Donald Trump. What do you make of the indictment? What's your sense of things going forward with, with him and uh, the legal issues surrounding him and how it might impact your house business? Because it seems like your speaker is firmly in the tank for Trump and trying to weaponize Congress uh, to help him. Absolutely. So the indictment is a double-edged sword. You know, is it something that is warranted? Most likely. Obviously, none of us are aware of the specific charges that are going to be pinning against him. But based upon everything that we already knew, Donald Trump never should have become the president of the United States not necessarily uh, because he was unqualified uh, as an individual, but more so because ethically he was unqualified. We know that there were many allegations of crimes that he had committed prior to this, yet there were no actions that were taken against him. And we're talking about allegations that rise to a level of seriousness that supersede what we see the average everyday American facing in our criminal uh, justice system. So the fact that this system has now decided that it would reach as high as someone as Donald Trump, to me, starts to make other people say, well, maybe justice will finally be served and not just served upon those that are from a lower socioeconomic uh, background or only certain people of certain colors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that he may have to face the music even as a former president, I think that that is starting to make people um, at least want to believe in the criminal justice system. As far as the House is concerned, what is so upsetting is the fact that this party continues to say that they are the party of law and order. Mm -hmm. They continue to want to impose um, higher penalties on folk, folk that are either drug addicted, uh, which is 
a a medical condition um, to suffer from addiction in and of itself. Um, and they continue to want to impose um, higher criminal penalties, say, on women um, that are seeking medical care in the form of abortion access. The idea that they are ready to give a pass without even knowing what it is that he's accused of and pointing the finger at the district attorney for having the audacity to do his job and to pull together um, a grand jury is ridiculous. I think that we will continue to see a house that doesn't plan to do the work of the people, but instead is continually seeking political points. Yeah, it's it's really, I mean, those are good points you're raising, and it's so dangerous when you have a, a Speaker of the House of the United States Representatives who as you've pointed out, is literally, and, and this is the case for most leading Republicans right now, is literally saying, I have, I have not seen the charges. I have no idea what the indictment is. I have no idea what the evidence is, but it's all unjust and a political persecution, which literally just demonstrates that it ha- this has nothing to do with the rule of law and everything to do with continuing to protect uh amazingly continuing to protect Donald Trump, who is probably the last person on earth they should be uh, uh, having this kind of fealty towards. Uh, Do you think the House is going to be able, until it switches back to Democratic control, hopefully in 24, to do anything in terms of not just holding Donald Trump accountable on any level, but not being an impediment uh, legally, ethically, morally, or other, uh, as other branches of our government are trying to do that. Is that possible? Or is it are they just going to get in the way and be meddling and threatening and trying to undermine the process? No, um, they won't get anything done. And seemingly they want to continue to kind of double down on stupid, right? <laughs> um, or double down on dumb, right? Like the idea is that historically, you know this, um, we should not be where we are in the U.S. House. We were supposed to get our butts kicked. Mm-hmm. That is the bottom line, right? We had a redistricting year where we really, any semblance of coverage and protection under the Voting Rights Act, something that we had coverage for for 50 years or more, right? Mm-hmm. We lost a lot of that cover, number one. Uh, we also saw that, you know, the the economic uh, status of the country was challenged. And so there's always a rebuke on the party in control, right? But somehow they managed to screw up what was really handed to them on a silver platter. And, you know, I think that with with how far they are going, with how extreme they have become, uh, the American people are not willing to go where the Republican Party is going. Uh, we won the presidency largely because they decided that Donald Trump was going to be their guy. Donald Trump lucked into the position the first go round, right? Mm -hmm. There were those of us that did not take him seriously. uh, As you know, Democrats have been accused of kind of being a little elitist, right? And Mm -hmm. I, I will say that a lot of us had a very intellectual elitist kind of attitude, like there's no way this guy can win. Right. Mm -hmm. And we we got caught slipping, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that we won't do that again. We will never take anyone for granted. So we had our learning lesson. 
But the Republicans aren't learning very well. We were able to pick up, you know, so many of these very tight seats where Donald Trump had endorsed a far right candidate that did not really work for the majority of folk. I mean, we were able to hold on to our seat in Georgia in the Senate because he went all in for Herschel Walker, yet another flawed MAGA Republican. I think if they would have nominated almost anybody else, while Reverend Warnock is definitely so much more qualified, so much more poised, I think that there would have been those Republicans that would have voted for a generic Republican mm-hmm. over Herschel Walker, right? Mm-hmm. And we would have had a problem. But they are giving us power um, by by continually you know, kind of blindly following uh, this this MAGA cult, yeah. this Trump cult. No, it's fascinating. I mean, I was watching real time with Bill uh, Bill Maher last night, and uh, Governor John Sununu was on, and he 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 said, "I voted for Trump twice, and if he's the nominee, I'd vote for him again." That I I, I don't understand with everything we all know about Donald Trump and what he's done to this country, uh, how people who are considered sane, like he's considered one of the sane ones, how people can still uh, voice their support for him. But let's, I want to go, uh, you, you grew up in Missouri. You uh, Were you yeah. a political kid? Were you interested in all this stuff as a no. kid? No. No. <laughs> Couldn't care less. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Mom, and turn the news to off, today. please. Yeah, no, I was, yeah, I, I was not uh, into it at all. And even... You know, nowadays, I'm just I'm just as frustrated with politics um, probably as I ever was. But, you know, it's my frustration that mm-hmm. really got me here. Right. right? Um, and I think it's one of the great things really about so many members of my freshman class. Um, while we are very well qualified, um, you've got a lot of experience kind of under the belts of this 118th class of at least Democrats, mm-hmm. right? Lots of us served in state houses, state senates, mayors. I mean, really great amount of experience, uh, even though on average we are a younger class than most. Uh, we got our experience a little earlier, but most of us were led into politics out of frustration. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of the the newer wave of Democrats while they may be um, achieving kind of different heights uh, in politics, they're they're in it more so because they recognize that that was the only way to change it and make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what's interesting to really... me is what's interesting is that you you ran for Congress not knowing that the margin that Republicans would take control over would just be a handful. You ran when everyone was talking about how Republicans are going to pick up 40, 50 seats. Yeah. What, what, I'll ask this just as frankly as I can, what on earth possessed you to jump into (laughs) that cesspool so willingly knowing that you were going to be not just working with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the uh, Lauren Boeberts and Paul Gosars, et cetera, but that your party our party was going to be outnumbered by f- perhaps 40, 50, 60 seats. Yet you still ran Whoa. and you won, thankfully. But <laughs> what were you thinking? Listen, I was thinking nothing could be worse than the Texas House. Well, that's so, true. So, I, mean, you know, I mean, I was coming out. <laughs> I was coming from the Texas House that has the Texas Senate and has Greg Abbott. Yeah. I mean, at least I was going to have 
at a very minimum, a Democratic executor, which is something that I was not used to. And honestly, I never believed the forecast. You know, Mm -hmm. even as I was sitting in freshman orientation, I was still holding out hope that we really were going to hold the house. After I finished my primary in a very safe, deeply blue seat, the money that I raised, I was sending it all over the country and I was watching different races. I was talking to different candidates um, and I was feeling pretty good that, you know, we would maybe hold on with a very thin margin, even in the face of all the adversity uh, that, that we were facing. And as someone who was coming out of Texas, where Texas was leading the way as it relates to um, stripping reproductive rights away from any person that had a uterus and and recognizing and feeling on the ground uh, a level of frustration, I could only imagine if I was feeling it here in the state of Texas, by this point, now we were dealing with the overturning of Roe in the form of the Dobbs decision. I could only imagine that level of frustration was actually reaching a fever pitch throughout this country Mm -hmm. and that there would be a blowback. And there was a a blowback that I think we'll continue to see as the Republicans are continually trying to chip away at rights that many of us have known our entire lives. You know, when I was born, Roe was the law of the land. I have less rights today than I had when I was born. And it's problematic and it's scary. And I think that people are starting to say, I may hate politics, but by gosh darn it, this is affecting whether or not I can even live. And and they are realizing that it is life or death. And I think that that is what is going to continually propel Democrats to wins that we technically are not supposed to have. Mm-hmm. So what I want to ask you about the, the, the frustration that you had and still have. But what was the moment where perhaps you were, you know, sitting on the couch one night watching Succession and you just said to yourself, screw it, I've had it, this is enough, I'm running for Congress. What was that moment? What triggered that decision? Yeah, so it wasn't so much like that. Uh, You know, I was serving in the Texas House and I, I never had any aspirations of really running for the Texas House nor running for the U.S. House. Uh, But my congresswoman was actually the most senior person in the Congress as far as age is Mm -hmm. concerned. And so at the tender age of 87, she said, you know, we need someone who's young and experienced. And I wanted to be a woman Mm -hmm. uh, to replace me. And so having someone who had served in an elected role for 50 years uh, in some way call you and say that you're like, okay, uh, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. I had a number of other calls and things like that, but um, it takes a lot and it takes courage uh, to say, you know what, it's my time is gone. I've done my part. It is time to pass the torch. And so if she thought that I was up to the task and if she felt like this was how I could really take my service to the next level, then, uh, yeah, I dove in head first and ended up in the largest primary in the state of Texas, giving up what was most likely going to be a very safe seat for me. I'd only won my primary uh, by 90 votes uh, to get to the state house. So it was pretty daunting to say, oh, I just did that two years ago. Now I'm going to jump into this mm-hmm. larger race uh, with, you know, nine opponents 
and give up my very safe seat. Hmm. Uh, but it's never really been about me as far as the seat is concerned. It's always been about the people. And I didn't really trust that anyone else that was running for that seat could really do this work or really would do this on the level that I would. It's not to say that they were bad. It's just a matter of I had experience that they didn't, whether it was in the courtrooms and the jails or whether it was literally in the halls of the Texas legislature. My unique experiences, I felt like, qualified me beyond what any person that was running uh, for the seat could offer. And I also felt like this was the time to make sure that people that weren't really concerned about the title, but were more so concerned about the safety of this country, the safety of the people in this country. And that safety is a financial thing, an educational thing, as well as, you know, criminal thing, as well as just kind of thinking about the larger scale of kind of where we are uh, as it relates to safety in the world, mm -hmm. as we see the threats that Russia continues to wage. And so, you know, thinking about all those things, I said, I've just got to do it. And if I don't win, that means that the people have spoken, uh, something that some people don't like to hear. Um, and and I will move on. And that's not the role that I needed to serve uh, my community in. But seemingly they they were happy to choose me. And, and we'll see if they're happy to uh, choose me again. Mm -hmm. And so aside from uh, Congresswoman Johnson, who were who your uh, role models or inspirations in terms of po politics or just notable figures who helped inspire you to make that decision to be interested in and uh, run for office? Yeah. So, you know, um, I am a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. So we have some pretty big giants when it comes to Black women in politics. Um, and so Shirley Chisholm mm -hmm. is like, the biggest and first one that always comes to mind mm -hmm. because she was the first black woman to run for Congress. Like she, I can only imagine kind of what was going through her head because what, what matters to me is that representation exists across the board. It is hard for people to see themselves in certain roles if they've never seen someone before. Mm -hmm. um, I can only imagine what was going on with Obama or even Kamala as they dared to reach heights right. that no one who looks like them had ever attained, mm. right? And so you do have the Shirley Chisholm's of the world, as well as closer to home in the state of Texas, Barbara Jordan, who is also a member of my sorority. And so these are figures that even as I was going through the process of becoming a member of Delta Sigma Theta, that we were learning about as part of that process, Dorothy Height, so many of these amazing figures um, as well as our secretary of HUD, Marsha Fudge, one of our previous national presidents. And so um, just even learning the history of Delta and the fact that their first formal act as a sorority was participating in the Women's Suffrage March. Like we tap into, so many of us do, tap into the roots of this organization that has existed since 1913. Mm -hmm. And to this day, um, so many of those women really do provide inspiration um, because they dare to do the things that had not been done. So the least that I can do is take these doors that they have opened and make sure that I kick them open and make sure that they remain open and that I remain true to the fights that they waged. I sit on the Ag Committee, a committee that Shirley Chisholm was committed to because mm -hmm. she felt as if 
um, hunger was a real thing that should not be a thing in this country. Unfortunately, we still have food insecurity um, in this country, and it is a fight that is worth waging, mm -hmm. um, a fight that Marsha Fudge also waged as mm -hmm. a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were recently in the news. You went to uh, the jail and visited with the J6 prisoners. Uh, that was something that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene was outbreaking about her, quote unquote, bipartisan delegation. And you <laughs> said what? to that. <laughs> I mean, it was bipartisan. I mean, technically, but what? Yeah. And there were, <laughs> but uh, for whatever reason, uh, she thought that I really was going to check on them. Um, I was not. I was going to make sure that uh, we could keep this trip honest. Mm -hmm. um, something that I am always concerned about when it comes to uh, members of definitely certain members of the Republican Party um, is their inclination to actually be honest. And as someone who has been in so many jails in multiple states, as well as federal, I know what bad conditions look like. Mm -hmm. I know what it means to be inhumane. And there was nothing in me that felt as if that was going on. But if it was going on, and if it was going on for the January Sixers, I would have been honest about it. Mm -hmm. But we were going on a tour of the entire jail. Mm -hmm. And so I would have been honest about the fact that it wasn't just January Sixers that it would have been, um, I, I would have laid out the challenges um, that existed for those other inmates that um, don't somehow summons and get visits from congressional members, right? Right. It's not like the um, J6 prisoners would be like eating oatmeal while other prisoners would be having Thai exactly. food brought in. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So I would have highlighted the concerns overall that I saw in the jail, but instead the reports that I got were like, Rep, we're telling you, there are no problems. And when I say no, um, obviously nothing is perfect, right? But mm -hmm. in the sense of inhumanity, and I've seen what abuse looks like, right? Mm -hmm. You know, on an announced visit, you're definitely not going to see them at their worst when right. it's announced, which is why most of the time when there are jail visits that go on, um, they are unannounced mm -hmm. because you want to catch them. But I know what abuse looks like, right? right. Like even that that's kind of covered up. And there was nothing that alarms me whatsoever. And instead, I mean, just recognizing how much privilege had been extended. Now, that was something I had never seen in my life. In almost 20 years of, of practicing law, I had not seen the accessibility to technology that these inmates have. It was It was quite astounding. And and listen, I, I definitely believe that, especially as a pretrial detainee, you were cloaked um, in, in innocence. I believe that, like, wholeheartedly, I believe that there has to be a process where, um, you know, whoever is doing the prosecuting is required to prove that someone is guilty. And so with that, I do believe that you're in a different space when you're held pretrial, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yes, we've got to hold you. Yes, we've got to balance out and make sure that the community is safe based upon what we know of your history, what we know of the allegations of your crime and that kind of stuff. But at the same time, you know, you're still an inmate, right? So it is kind of like this delicate balance. And so while I am not upset that inmates are being given access to uh, technology, uh, it is a spit in the face of inmates, specifically those in the state of Texas, who are lacking so much to act as if it's inhumane. Essentially, 
You're just arguing they shouldn't be in jail. Mm -hmm. That's that's the argument. Like, don't lock them up, uh, even though, you know, these are the same people that, you know, touted over and over and over, lock her up. Right. And to this day, there still has not been enough to even present to a grand jury as it relates to Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. And as one of the two Democrats who went with Green, uh, and they, I guess she came back, she was kind of muted. We didn't really hear any anything that was any, you know, it didn't sort of achieve the goals that I, I think she set out to achieve. Would you say it backfired on her or it was just like a nothing burger? <laughs> it came and went and, you know, just more blood, yammering it, from her, you know. It definitely backfired uh, big time. Uh, honestly, I don't think that they anticipated that any Democrats would go. And and to be perfectly honest, it makes no sense that senior members of my party would go and check on people that were trying to kill them. Mm -hmm. Like that, that makes no sense. But there are some strong freshman voices that sit on the oversight committee. And yeah, and we went, we were not victims of the, 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 the crimes that were committed on that day as far as direct victims. Obviously, we still are very much concerned about our democracy and they managed to definitely put a crack in our democracy. But as far as them actually physically trying to assault us, we did not endure that. So definitely different for us to go in. But I also felt like she did not feel threatened whatsoever because we were freshmen. And, you know, she has a loud bullhorn. And I'm pretty sure that she thought that it would be louder than us. But also she recognized that she wasn't just going to be able to make up the most ridiculous things, considering the fact that there were two Democrats that were there to really uh, hold them accountable. And so you saw that she kind of shifted her conversation about conditions mm -hmm. and really more so just focused on they're innocent. There was no insurrection. Well, you didn't need to take a jail visit to right. have your opinion of that. Yeah, right. You just like, go on Sean Hannity know. for that. Exactly. Exactly. So. We, I, I think we definitely made her pivot out of that conversation. And then you had at least one Democrat that had a ton of credibility because I've, you know, you can find logs of me walking into jails. Mm -hmm. So this may be the only jail that you've ever cared to visit in your life. And so you don't really have a frame of reference. But when it came to the media, whoever you are, there definitely was going to be a level of credibility that came with me making that visit because I have been in various jails in this mm -hmm. country. Well, it's we're thrilled that you were able to go, and uh, I bet you she wasn't counting on 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 that. And some <laughs> someone like you. My my last question to you is about the House again, and you also serve on the Oversight Committee, which is chaired by James Comer, who is another one who's you know, I mean, I can't think of any other thing to say all the time except like he's carrying Trump's balls in his hand. And how does how does the House Oversight Committee, which is so critical to upholding the rule of law in this country, how is it going to achieve that end with someone like James Comer chairing it? And how do you function on a committee like that when it's so clear how partisan and in the tank they are for Trump? You know, people often sometimes ask me about my committees. And I tell them that my substance committee is my ad committee and oversight, unfortunately, is lacking all substance. Right. Mm -hmm. But we really are the front line for messaging in this country. Uh, we are the ones that are supposed to stop the misinformation in its tracks. And so, you know, oversight is being used as a vehicle to, number one, 
weaponize the government. Interestingly enough, that they have the weaponization committee. Right. Um, and and it's supposed to be about Democrat weaponizing, but I think it's appropriate that it's their committee. Yeah. Um, as we see, you know, the threats that are being waged against uh, the honorable DA in Manhattan. And so, you know, that is essentially what oversight has become is a committee that is less focused on oversight and making sure that we're being good stewards of the resources uh, that we have and making sure that we're holding those agencies accountable, making sure that we're finding out and discovering what more we can do for agencies to provide resources, whether it has to do with border security. You know, they've used our border hearings to pretty much just say, Biden is a failure and Biden has open borders Mm -hmm. instead of having an honest conversation about do we have enough people that are processing the applications for those that are seeking asylum, right? Do we have enough investigators to determine whether or not these are really warranted asylum seekers and sending those back quickly enough? The last that I knew, the backlog for an asylum seeker is about six years before we really have a conversation on whether or not asylum was like to be granted or not. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine trying to go back six years ago and figure out whether or not there was harm um, that they were facing, right? It's inefficient and it's not fair, right? And so like providing the resources, you know, the idea that the border is just here in Texas uh, is yet another farce and they're failing to really talk about you know, what's happening, say, in New York or failings to talk about our waterways, right? Like we have more than one border. Uh, it's more than just with Mexico or failing to have real conversations around, you know, how much we're doing by way of talking to these countries that are struggling mm-hmm. to try to minimize the people that are coming over, right? Like and working with them. So like we're not working on solutions, right? The, the Republicans are focused on scare tactics, overall and no solutions. And the committee that is leading the way is the oversight committee. And so I think what we're doing is we're showing the country, you've got one side of the aisle that is trying to provide for solutions. And the other side is going to continue to kind of lean in on scare tactics. And honestly, just lunacy. The fact that one of my first hearings, if not the first one, was on Twitter. And I'm just like, I'm sorry. While I was not knocking on doors, not one person asked me about Twitter <laughs> right. and their concerns <laughs> about a about New York Post article. Right. Right. So <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what Poland y'all have, but like, this is stupid. Like, <laughs> not to mention last I checked, like Twitter wasn't one of our governmental agencies. Right. So I'm like, what are we doing? Right. But like making them look irresponsible and child and, and childish, I believe, is our goal is to show the American people we got some adults in the room. They all have these in front of their names. And then we've got people that are truly wasting our resources and they all have an R in front of their name. I think you're a million percent right. And I think I think the American people are way smarter than than the Republican Party uh, would like to believe. I think they, they love I mean, Donald Trump himself said, I like I like the ignorant. And uh, I think they're treating the electorate like morons. And I think they have a, a way too thin a majority to be doing that. And I think in 24 uh, they're going to find that out uh, firsthand when the the house flips back. So I lied before. I actually have a couple of quick questions in closing. Okay. They're not involving politics at all. We here in the back room like to get a little window into the soul of people we, we talk with. So I have two quick questions. First one is, are you a dog or a cat person? Dog. 
Wow, you said that really emphatically and quickly, <laughs> which often yeah. means you hate cats. But we, we don't have to I answer that. I don't hate them, but I definitely, I, I definitely don't want any. <laughs> okay. And the second question is, music is the best window into someone's soul. Give me your top five musical artists of all time. Who of all time? Um, all right. So we're definitely going to go with Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. Beyonce. I actually really, really love Jamie Foxx. Wow. Um, and then I'm going to go with Floetry. <laughs> okay. Well. Awesome. Awesome list. You're, <laughs> you're awesome. Uh, I am thrilled that you're in Congress. I hope you'll be there as long as Congresswoman Johnson, and uh, I hope you'll come back. You've been very generous with your time, and good luck to you, and keep fighting a good fight. Thanks so much, Andy. Alrighty, Take care. Bye. That's episode 58. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langale for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.